This is the Water Cooler Podcast coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. We're not here just to win an election, nor are you here just to help to win an election. We are here to win something, to do something for our country. The unmistakable voice of Sir Robert Menzies, possibly the best public speaker in political life in Australian history, but we don't have recordings of everybody going back to the 19th century, so we'll withhold judgment on that. But this is the Watercooler podcast coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre. And today we want to focus on the oratory of that great man, Sir Robert Menzies. He was a, a, a man who sculpted language with the skill of a craftsman. He chose his words very carefully and, and shaped them with dexterity. The Menzies Research Centre has just published a new volume of a selection of his sharpest observations drawn from thousands of speeches, lectures and broadcasts delivered over 40 momentous years in public life. His reflections on topics range from liberalism, freedom and democracy to foreign policy and Australian national identity and they're anchored in the principles and values of liberalism that are no less relevant today. With me to discuss this book is the man who is responsible for compiling, editing this marvellous collection of quotations David First Roberts. David, welcome once again to Watercooler. Good morning, Nick. Great to be with you again. In that uh, quote we just heard there, in fact, I'll play the whole quote again, actually, David, so we get the full context. This is Robert Menzies speaking at a Young Liberals rally in Hawthorne in July 1962. And I think just to put it in context, you might like to explain this. They'd just come out, it was not long, a year after an election which he nearly lost, right? Yes, that's right. Um he was uh, facing off against Arthur Cornwall, who was leading the ALP, and he won the 1961 election by only one seat by a few hundred votes. So Ironically, with Communist Party preferences. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, which he probably didn't deserve, given his stance on the Communist Party earlier on. But anyway, a win is a win. Uh, so it's in the context of that very, very narrow victory, which I think shook Menzies up quite a lot and his government because he'd been in power for a long time. In the context of that, let's listen to his advice to the young Liberals in 1962, a year later. We're not here just to win an election, nor are you here just to help to win an election. We are here to win something, to do something for our country. And therefore we must at all times try to behave according to the standards of statesmanship and not just according to the standards of vote getting. That's rhetoric you don't hear very often these days, David, isn't it? I mean, we also, we're so focused on the politics. We're so focused on the mechanics of just getting into power. There's very little thought about what we do when we are actually in power. But I've, I find that speech, that particular quotation, very powerful. Yes, absolutely. Um, as you say, electioneering has changed enormously in the past uh, 60 years or so since Menzies gave that speech. And uh, in Menzies' time, 
he believed that elections were not just about uh, winning office, but about what you were going to do when you were in office, the vision you had for the country and the policies you wanted to enact and the direction in which you wanted to take the country. These were things that were um, contested at every election. And I think there too we hear, uh, apart from this deep public purpose he had, we, we, we get a glimpse of his speaking power, the power of his voice. You called the book In His Own Words. Explain that title to us. These were all speeches in Menzies' own words and it's important to appreciate that Menzies actually did not have a speechwriter. As he said in his memoirs, Afternoon Light, he said he didn't have one because he didn't like other people putting words into his mouth. He preferred to say things as he saw them directly from the horse's mouth, as it were. He was able to craft his own speeches and Menzies was also uh, somebody who quoted at length from uh, the great writers down the ages. So he quoted not only from Shakespeare and the Bible, but also from uh, writers such as William Wordsworth, James Shirley, Alfred Lord Tennyson, John Milton, Francis Bacon and many others. They were very erudite speeches, weren't they? I mean, the content, the vocabulary, the the references to great works, uh, the, the great canon of literature, the Bible, they, they were the speeches of a man who'd read and thought deeply, wasn't, weren't they? Yes, of course. I mean, his speeches uh, were really the product of so much reading the great works of Western civilization and uh, our English-speaking heritage. Those words just permeated his speeches and his rhetoric. I wonder just... By way of diversion, David, they were perhaps a reflection of a man educated at the time he was. He was the the last Australian Prime Minister to be born in the 19th century, grew up in the early 20th century, was educated up to and, and just after World War II. Education was possibly a very different thing in Australia in those days, do you think? Yes. I mean, he had uh, an excellent formal education, uh, both at uh, Wesley College in Melbourne and then at the University of Melbourne. But in conjunction with that, he was also very well self-educated. He uh, read voraciously um, the works of uh, great English literature and history and law. And he was both uh, self-educated and um, well-educated in a formal sense. We heard in that, uh, in that first extract this strong sense of the national interest, his sense, a very strong idea that he had of what being an Australian meant. Let's listen to another speech. This one comes from a Liberal Party rally in Cottesloe in WA on the 8th of March, 1958. We in Australia pride ourselves on having a feeling of adventure and courage. And if I may say so to you, we are far better known around the world for those two qualities than we are for anything else. And let us keep it so. Well, we could probably speak for hours, David, about, about whether Australia has remained like that, but let's resist the temptation to do so. But this was a, a notion of Australia as a nation known around the world for its courage. What was the basis for Robert Menzies to say that at that time? Menzies, you know, celebrated the story of Australia. It was a great uh, bastion of Western civilization. 
It was a nation that had uh, sprung from very humble beginnings, from a convict penal colony, and uh, from that it was a nation of great pioneers who had travelled westward and farmed the land, mined the soil, and then uh, into the 20th century it created a great constitutional democracy at Federation, and into the 20th century it also became a great immigrant nation that attracted people from all around the world who came here to contribute to Australia and to build modern Australia through the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme and through so many other projects. And the continual thread he saw through Australia's history was that of pioneering and adventure. Yeah, and I guess too we'd have to put in there the experience of Australians at war because 1958... The year I was born, incidentally, but 1958, just 13 years after the end of World War Two, uh, there'd been the Korean War in the interim. Australians did, I think, identify and pride themselves with courage in battle. Yes, of course. Don't forget, Menzies' um, first term of prime minister was, of course, as wartime prime minister, with the outbreak of the Second World War, and he made that famous speech after. Nazi Germany had invaded Poland and Britain had declared war on Germany. He said that Australia was also at war. And so he was at the very coalface of the Second World War in its early years. Let's go back to something you said earlier, or we referred to earlier, which was his references to works, including the Bible. Uh, Let's listen to this extract from a speech he gave at the opening of the National Memorial Bible House in Canberra on the 13th of February, 1960. The Bible is the most remarkable repository of religious history. Frankly, I don't think that any man could regard himself as educated unless he had become familiar with the great historic story in the Bible. Well, there's a challenging one, David. I mean, I, I, I think you and I probably wouldn't disagree with Menzies. No man can consider himself educated uh, unless he's familiar with the great historic stories of the Bible. That would have been a, a fairly uncontroversial comment at that time, I would imagine. What do you think? Yes, so um, he first of all saw the Bible as a great piece of literature, especially the King James Bible from the 17th century which was really the, um, the jewel in the crown of English literature. And uh, he was, of course, steeped in its language, and he was made to learn great um, chunks of that Bible as he grew up as a boy. But secondly, he also saw the Bible as the great repository of the Christian faith and also the Jewish tradition as well through the Old Testament. And... Uh, He saw the precepts of the Bible and its great teachings as shaping so much of our civilization and our culture and our national ethos. Yeah, and I think it's extraordinary. We've talked about this before, how today, uh, in an era where a lot of people, uh, 30-odd, 40%, I forget the figure, uh, would declare themselves as having no religion at a census, and yet uh, six out of the last seven Prime Ministers in this country have have had uh, a strong Christian faith. In fact, you could probably go back further than that, but it's extraordinary that it still is a guiding principle for many of our political leaders. How do we 
start redressing the balance on that, David? Well, um, Australia, of course, has become uh, so much more secular. I think at the time that Menzies gave his speech at the Bible Society, according to the census, about 88% of Australians identified as Christian. And in the most recent uh, 2016 census, that number had fallen to just 52%. And so there's been this long trend of secularisation over the past several decades. But for some reason, um, the holders of our highest elected office have continued to identify as Christian. And uh, I think their Christian faith probably informs their calling to public life and their desire to contribute to the well-being of Australia and to advance the common good. And so the Christian faith has continued to be their guiding light in that public calling and endeavour. Staying on this subject, you, you're in the middle of, of, of writing, uh, I think, a very important book on this subject, on Robert Menzies and his faith, God and Menzies. How far, how, how far off are we from publication of this, David? I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, yeah, so I'm just um, working on the final chapter at the moment, which will look at um, both uh, the freedom of religion and the freedom of political conscience. So, uh, first of all, Menzies affirmed the importance of uh, religious freedom and how essential that was to a free and democratic society. But he also spoke about the uh, freedom of political conscience, and that was for Christians or people of any faith, really, to be able to um, have the freedom to support the political party of their choice and that uh, a Christian could either be a Labour supporter or a Liberal supporter or a country party supporter in good conscience. Well, let's go back to some of the quotes in your book. The one we're about to hear uh, was given at a Liberal Party rally uh, at the Brisbane City Hall on the 21st of June, 1961. The great thing on these matters is to be never to be afraid because of some unpopularity attaching to what is done. To get rid of fear, to cast it out, and to have a belief in the people of Australia, which I have profoundly deep down in me, that the, this is a nation of honest, decent people who respect firmness, who respect what they believe to be intelligence, and who are honest and are not looking for some cheap advantage. We must have faith in ourselves because we have faith in our people. That's a, a very refreshing perspective from a politician these days. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about spin, don't we, David? And, and, and that, to me, if you, the whole notion of spin is that you're somehow trying to deceive or dupe somebody into thinking something. Menzies had a lot more respect for the population than that, didn't he? I mean, he, 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 he didn't talk down to them in the slightest. He had enormous respect. That's right. He um, saw himself as the uh, first among equals, and I guess um, he believed very sincerely in the legal doctrine of the rule of law which implied that uh, everybody, whether you were a parliamentarian or a judge or a police officer or an ordinary citizen, we were all equal under the law. 
And so um, he saw himself as not over and above the citizenry of Australia, but as one of us, as one of our citizens. And so he also saw himself as a servant and not a master of the people. He was in politics to serve. And he said uh, the etymology of the Prime Minister that it means a prime servant of the country and its people. I wish we could get that attitude back. I mean, the public servants are supposed to serve too, but sometimes you wonder if they take that bit of their name seriously enough. But look, this is a very important uh, principle I think you've hit on here, the idea that every person is of equal moral worth. It's fundamental to the Christian faith, but also fundamental to the liberal approach. Absolutely. Menzies affirmed in 1942 that the nature of democracy is based on the premise that we are all like creatures, um, which in our Christian concept means that we are all of equal dignity and value. And he imbibed this idea from the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition and the Bible that taught that every human is created in the image and likeness of God. But it was also affirmed in the uh, 18th century Enlightenment and, of course, the um, American experiment in democracy and the Declaration of Independence that we are all created free and equal. And, f- and from that flows his, his very, very profound commitment to equality of opportunity. Can you explain how that differs from the, the socialist idea of equality? Because we were all born free and equal, he believed that um, every individual had an equal uh, opportunity to shine in their field of endeavour, be it music or art or literature or sport or maths or science. He believed uh, in the equality of opportunity for anybody who was um, motivated and talented to succeed. This differed from the... um, more socialist belief, on the other hand, in the equality of outcome, which held that everybody, uh, regardless of their own effort or endeavour, should just um, receive the same uh, rewards from the state. Then that, that I think that equal opportunity extended to migrants, of course. Uh, it was a big period in Australian history for migration under Menzies. Let's listen to... Sir Robert now speaking at a naturalisation ceremony in Perth on the 24th of July, 1961. We are a friendly people. We're not stuffy. We're not consumed by snobberies of class or some of this nonsense that has beset some of the older countries of the world. You're in an essentially democratic country where every man has a chance to stand on his own feet, and every woman, and to be taken at his or her own true value by other people. Nothing could be better than that. To be free, to feel that there's no shadow over you, to feel that there's none of the paraphernalia of dictatorship in this country, that we are in the truest sense a friendly 
community, a brotherhood, and a sisterhood of people. Uh, David, I might just pick up on that very last comment there. We are a brotherhood, and then Menzies adds almost as um, almost as a, a, a matter of course, and a sisterhood of people. That's 1961. It, it's before Jermaine Greer. It's before the modern feminist movement. It's certainly before the intersectional identity politics that we have now. And yet, to Menzies, the concept of equal opportunity regardless of gender, was vital, wasn't it? It was, and it's interesting you make that point because um, Menzies had a very sincere belief um, in gender equality. Uh, he affirmed the uh, equal dignity and status of men and women, even though they may have different roles in life. Um, he saw them as um, absolutely equal in the sight of God and also equal in society as well and in public and civic life. And the word brotherhood and sisterhood are important because um, Menzies saw citizens as um, related to each other, which stemmed from the biblical precept of being one's brother's keeper or sister's keeper. And so uh, citizens were related to each other and as such they had uh, rights and obligations towards each other and they were to uh, not only look after their own interest, but to care for each other as well and to look after the interests of the other, to prefer another to oneself, if you like. There's another side to, to Menzies, which I, I find um, we're possibly um, neglecting now, if I can be so bold, and that is the idea that, that we're not here just to manage the books as a Liberal Party. We're not it's not just all about pound shillings and pence, as he, as he frequently said. It's about building a civilization. It's about virtue. It's about these grander values. Uh, these are, um, it seems strange things for a politician to be talking about nowadays, but uh, Menzies was, was repeatedly uh, talking about civilization and the virtues of civilization. Let's listen to him. Uh, once again in WA, as it happens, at a, at a WA conversation of the Liberal Party in South Perth Civic Centre on the 30th of July, 1962. We could easily become man for man, woman for woman, the richest country in the Southern Hemisphere. But it won't matter very much unless we can say that we are the most civilised country in the southern hemisphere. Civilised because we understand the unselfish duties of citizenship. Civilised because we have come to understand the importance of the human being, the dignity of the human being, the dignity of labour, the responsibility of riches. These are the tests of civilization. at our great task is to produce a civilised nation. They're um, very ambitious words, aren't they, David? And, and certainly today, uh, it's a long time since I've heard a politician talk about producing a more civilised nation. Perhaps there's a context to that historically or perhaps there's something else going on. What do you think? Well, yes. I mean, um, Menzies, like all politicians and leaders today, was obviously concerned with... Um, 
advancing the prosperity of the country to ensure that uh, the economy flourished with uh, economic growth and job creation and greater living standards for all citizens. But at the same time, he believed immensely that uh, there was more to um, Australia's destiny than just becoming a wealthier, richer country, that it was all about enriching the uh, character of our citizens and being able to inculcate in them the civilised virtues of unselfish citizenship and the dignity of labour and the dignity of every individual. These, of course, were based on Judeo-Christian precepts and also the uh, long tradition of uh, liberalism. The the idea of civilization, which was a normal thing for Menzies to talk about, it's something people shy away from now. I think it's under attack uh, from the universities, from intellectuals of the the post-colonial tradition who see that there's nothing inherently virtuous about Western thought or British thought or our way of life here. But Menzies, of course, would have seen it very differently. Indeed. He, um, he believed that Australia was heir to the great Enlightenment tradition and Judeo-Christian uh, tradition as well. And so he, um, he understood the importance that these traditions had accorded to um, the dignity of the individual and also to civilised virtues that he spoke of in his speech, the dignity of labour and equality and justice. And of course, Menzies in his time was not blind to the um, problem of racism. um, There was this letter, for example, where he um, expressed his disappointment that this Aboriginal was discriminated on the basis of his race. And uh, even though... He was conservative on um, immigration. He did not defend the Migration Restriction Act on the basis of any notion of racial superiority, but rather on a more conservative um, grounds of um, maintaining social cohesion, which may seem anachronistic today, but in the context of his time, He uh, believed that that was the right and prudent approach for Australia to take in its immigration policy. Might just pause for a commercial break, as it were, if if, if you'll excuse me, David, and uh, just to talk about the book uh, which we're discussing today. Menzies, in his own words, a collection of quotes, edited by by you, David First Roberts, with a a beautiful foreword by Heather Henderson, uh, Robert Menzies' daughter, which is... uh, well worth the price of admission in itself, I think, in this book. Uh, but the book's published by Japarit Press. That's the imprint of the Menzies Research Centre in conjunction with Connor Court. And you can buy it directly from us by going to uh, menziesrc.org and clicking on books, and you'll find everything you need to know there. I think twenty nine ninety five. I could be <laughs> I could be out there, but it's around that price. It's a, a nicely produced paperback, which everybody should really have on their shelves for future reference. But back to Menzies... As a speaker, David, perhaps we could um, discuss what we know, what we've been able to glean, in part, I think, from Heather Henderson about the way Menzies approached public speaking. He didn't, although he wrote, uh, effectively authored all, almost all his own speeches, if not all of them, uh, he didn't uh, usually 
there were occasions when he did. He didn't usually write these out in full and just read them, did he? How did he approach public speaking? I think he would um, think about what he wanted to say and he would perhaps write down some dot points of the main message that he wanted to convey. But then when he came to the uh, lectern or the podium or wherever, he would um, then speak freely without any text to read from and let the language flow naturally and... He would speak sort of extemporaneously in that sense. Which, which I think gives it its freshness. Um, another thing Heather Henderson told us was that he'd often sit back and having made his notes, and we can read a lot of those notes, can't we, in, in the uh, extensive diaries he kept, but um, having made those notes, he'd often sit back and read some poetry before he spoke. Once I heard that, it didn't surprise me because there is a... A, a rhythmic quality the way he speaks. He speaks very naturally, doesn't he? Yes, so um, he'd read the poems of, say, uh, William Shakespeare or William Wordsworth and um, that would give him then the cadence and the rhythm and also the vocabulary to um, enhance the speech that he would give. And so his speech would be infused with this beautiful poetic quality to it that he imbibed from his wide reading of uh, English literature. And some of those were, those species we're fortunate to have recordings of, audio recordings, available through the National Library, which is where, National Library of Australia, which is where we, we managed to get these clips. And I think, uh, my last count, I think there was well over 250 species there. You might have a more up-to-date figure on that, David, I don't know. Yes, there's an enormous amount of... Uh, speeches in the National Library um, in what are called the uh, Menzies Papers, uh, which number several hundred boxes, actually. And um, many of those, of course, contain his speeches from his long uh, time in public life, from being a, um, a junior Victorian uh, Member of Parliament in the late 1920s to an elder statesman, in the uh, 1970s. And uh, he'd get those speeches uh, transcribed, didn't he? As he made them, I guess somebody would have been either taking notes or listening to a recording. So the words that we read in those written speeches, although it wasn't a piece of paper he had before him when he spoke, it's, 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 uh, we know it's a, a, an accurate account of what he said. And, and often with his notes in the margins, I think we see now and again, now and again don't we? Yes, we do. So there would have been a... Um a scribe or a stenographer present when he um, gave his speeches. But we also see that he made notes in the margins as well and um, made tweaks and corrections to some of his words um, in those speeches that he prepared as well. I think you contrast that today and, um, you know, very few prime ministers write their own speeches. Uh, Tony Abbott being an exception, although after a while even he found that the pressure of public life was such that he needed a little bit more help from his speechwriters, uh, Paul Ritchie and others. But what we have here, and I think it comes out in the book, is you can see the evolving of his thoughts, can't you? You, you, you the book is thematic in that we, you know, we go into this topic by topic rather than in strict uh, chronological order, but within those topics... 
uh, you seem to have followed a, a chronological structure, which is is terrific, I think, because you can see how his thoughts would never change. Uh, you know, his, start, his fundamentals would be right, but they would evolve, they would nuance. That's right. So um, he remained firm and true to his principles, but at the same time he was able to um, calibrate them and adjust them to the uh, circumstances of the time to ensure, in short, that his message was relevant but always rooted in principle. You know, when people think about a book, book of quotes, you think about those little lightweight ones that almost float off the, the, the book counter at bookstores, you know, 101 quotes about puppies or things like that. This is very different, I found, David. It, 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 it's because of the, first of all, of course, the, the intellectual quality of, of the thought that went into those words. Secondly, if I can just flatter you a bit, the way you pulled these together... It, each each little quote is a, a real opportunity and a challenge to think in itself, isn't it? They're quite complex thoughts, but usually expressed in in clear, plain English. That's right. Um, so for anybody reading this book, they will notice that not all the quotes are necessarily uh, pithy one-liners. Uh, some of them are, in fact, um, lengthier paragraphs, but that was essential to be able to uh, capture in full the idea that Menzies was seeking to convey. The quotes in the book are of variable lengths and it just also showed the variety in Menzies' um, speaking style. Yes, he could be capable of uh, delivering uh, short, snappy quotes, but at other times it was deemed necessary to... um, explain things in greater detail and depth as well of course this is years before twitter uh, years before the you know the quick um five second grab he didn't think like that he probably didn't need to in in that era but it is um a very very refreshingly deep so thank you for that david let's go now to another speech this one uh, later in life it's after he left his office of prime minister it's a speech given at a Dover College luncheon in England on the 12th of July, 1968. We're in the great procession of history. There is no place in the world in which it can be better understood than it can be here. To know the past, not to dwell on the past, not to be smug about the past, but to know the past so as to derive inspiration from it and pride and standards from it in the light of which we propose to devote our activity to the future and to see that the future is worthy of the things generated in the past. Yeah, his attitude to history there, um, not to dwell on it, but to be conscious of it. We, we of course, I mean, part of what we're doing today, of course, is trying to... to, uh, bring back to current thought some some of the history some of the historic ideas which are very relevant today but that overall comment um i think menzies would probably be disappointed with the way we teach history these days and the extent to which we teach it would you agree with that yes i would um for menzies um history was not only an interesting study of the past but it was an instructive lesson for us today. It taught us 
what to do right, but it also taught us not to, not what to do right. And um, for Menzies, history was important because it was about um, learning the truth of what happened through uh, facts and figures and um, original sources. But it was less about um, trying to superimpose an ideological interpretation of history to suit one's present um, political thoughts or predispositions. One of Menzies' great achievements was the expansion of higher education, the democratisation of higher education from the late 50s onwards. Uh, Let's listen to Menzies now speaking to a graduate ceremony in April 1967. You can't be a good teacher unless you know how to learn. Then you'll understand the people you're teaching and their minds and their outlook. I I sometimes think Menzies had a different idea of what a higher education should be, David, than the way it turned out. Yes, yes, indeed. So in that quote, it was about the teacher or the lecturer being able to empathise with their student and being able to um, appreciate that um, every teacher starts off as a learner before they become a teacher. And so it is that these learners that um, the teacher or lecturer is teaching will one day become teachers as well in their own right. And so it's important to get behind that learning process before that um, student or pupil becomes a teacher in their own right. He saw education, higher education, I think, as a, as a good experience in himself. He, he wasn't so much driven by what we might call vocational education. Uh, I mean, he, he was in the sense of training up you know, people with practical skills, but a university was supposed to be uh, something you did for the joy of being educated and you'd come out an educated and more civilised person. Yes, indeed. Um, so higher education was about not only um, training to become qualified in one profession or another, but it was about learning not only for the mind but also for the heart. It was not only um, acquiring more knowledge and more understanding but also um, cultivating a more civilised mind and a heart that was informed by um, timeless truths and ideals. Well, thank you, David, and thank you for doing a tremendous service to history by compiling this volume of Robert Menzies' quotes Menzies in his own words, a collection of quotes edited by by you, David First Roberts, with a foreword by Heather Henderson, published by Japarit Press, that's the imprint of the Menzies Research Centre in conjunction with Conacourt, and available from the Menzies Research Centre website, menziesrc.org, and uh, click on books. Uh, David, thank you once again, and um, we look forward to your next work, which is uh, God and Menzies, which will be out later this year. Thank you, Nick, very much. You've been listening to the Watercooler podcast from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. If you want to become one of the growing number of people who want to support this great free content, then you can do so by going to menziesrc.org 
clicking on subscription and you can subscribe from just $10 a month. That's menziesrc.org slash subscription. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Listening.